This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ten women got up on a stage Tuesday to tell their Me Too stories. They either work or used to work in journalism. And after Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, Mark Halperin, and others, these women came together to make a plan for how their industry can change. One of the women, Diana May, lives in Denver, and she's here with us today. Welcome to the program, Diana. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. You have lived with what happened in your former career involving a colleague at ABC News for a long time. And I wonder what gave you the motivation, the courage to get on that stage, which was at the National Press Club in D.C. on Tuesday. Well, um, what gave me the courage, I have to say, is the group of women um, who came together to form this organization called Press Forward. And uh, for a long, long time, for years, decades, I would say that I struggled with what to do with what happened to me. And I think that's part of the issue is that people have been silenced for so long. And uh, when I was ultimately um, approached by the Washington Post to tell my story, I was so frightened. Um but decided to tell my story. I felt like uh, having left the industry that I was in a safe enough place to tell my story. As it turns out, there were a lot of stories about these individuals. And um, interestingly, we found each other all on social media. And uh, so after about a week of just talking about what had each happened to happened to each of us, we decided to form this organization. And that's honestly where the courage came from. So press forward the idea of uh, helping newsrooms change their culture. We'll talk about that in just a bit. You indeed decided to go on the record a few months ago with the Washington Post. And uh, the headline was, I don't want to sit on your lap, uh, saying that nevertheless, Mark Halperin in this case at ABC News when you were there insisted on multiple occasions. I want to play some of what you said, though, at this uh, press conference yesterday. I'm here today because, like my fellow joyous warriors here on stage, uh, I was also subjected to abhorrent behavior in the newsroom that left me feeling ashamed, embarrassed, and powerless. But after decades of reflection, I now know that this behavior is not just about one individual acting badly, as I initially thought. It was the result of a leadership vacuum that permitted it to happen, a leadership system that I believe valued ratings uh, over human decency. Was it a relief at all to get that out? Um, absolutely. I, I want to be clear. A relief, yes. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't want people to step away uh, hearing this conversation and thinking that press forward is angry or vengeful. It's, um, it's really about affecting positive change. And so it's not – that wasn't intended to be an attack on leadership, it, but it was really – a an invitation for for organizations to learn how to put leaders and management in place that understand these issues, that are willing to be transparent about these issues, uh, to hold people accountable for their behavior. Um, another thing that I said was, you know, part of my my main mission in life right now is raising my two young boys and the values that I bring to that process is, is you know, respectfulness, uh, honesty, transparency. I hold my kids accountable for their actions. Leadership, uh, these institutions need to hold 
people accountable for their behavior. I want to talk about how they do that, uh, but say that at least five women have publicly accused Halperin, who's also worked at MSNBC, Bloomberg Politics, and is a prominent political writer. And we are talking about some really serious behavior from the other men we mentioned in the introduction as well. I mean, Matt Lauer allegedly had a button on his desk to lock the door of his office where he'd sexually assault women. Charlie Rose was said to have walked around naked in front of female colleagues, grabbed them at times. Public radio personalities have also been accused. You have mentioned a failure of leadership, but also this idea of putting profit first. Uh, Just say more about that, the forces at play in media today that you think have led to this climate. It's such a complicated issue, as you might imagine. Um, But if you think about somebody, uh, you need to think about the abuse of power. Uh, We we see this as, as an abuse of power. And when you've got somebody, and we talked a lot about this yesterday in Washington, is how when somebody has six zeros after their salary figure and somebody else has two or three, um, and that person, that individual, um, the star, the anchor, the one who's in power, generates tens of hundreds of millions of dollars for these organizations. And that's a very difficult thing for leadership when there's this power imbalance, you know, excusing that person. Mm. Um, but that's sort of – that's one of the things that we're seeking is a zero-tolerance policy. It doesn't matter. We want leadership to take action irrespective of somebody's position or power or salary. I wonder if the climate has changed enough since uh, Me Too emerged that companies no longer see it as tenable to hold these people around. I mean, that's certainly what we've seen with – uh, some of these firings. Do you think the environment has changed so that perhaps that bottom line equation is much different now? Well, I'm I'm also a lawyer, and I'm I'm, I'm not so naive uh, to think that um, that's not a consideration when they're when they're facing lawsuits that can cost them tens of millions of dollars. Mm. We talked about it's this. still an economic equation. Well, is it, it is an economic equation, but one of the things that we also uh, like to say at Press Forward is that this is this isn't a uh, this is a human decency issue. This isn't just an economic consideration. And when somebody's behaving badly. It shouldn't just be about an economic consideration. They should be excused from what they're doing. They, there just needs to be zero tolerance. Again, regardless of, of um, the money that's involved, if, you know, when my kids do something bad, I hold them to account. It's as simple as that. So as uh, a member of your group, Press Forward, said, uh, you will be doing culture assessments in individual newsrooms. I guess those have started already informally. They have started informally, and uh, we're very grateful. We've got a number of incredible uh, organizations that are partnering with us, including Time's Up, um, uh, but also the Pointer Institute, uh, which is going to help us develop guidelines, uh, training processes, these cultural assessments, developing them over time. This is a kind of journalism think tank. Uh, yes, the yeah. Pointer Institute is indeed, and they're going to help us develop uh, these cultural assessments so we can get to the underlying um, 
reasons why this why this behavior happens. We've got some short term goals that we want to accomplish. Uh, Press forward does, um, but also to take a deeper dive and understand where these behaviors have come from. I'll say that Time's Up is the group started by women in Hollywood. If you're just joining us, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. And I'm speaking with Diana May, who was on a stage in Washington just yesterday announcing uh, the intentions of a group she's a part of called Press Forward, women in journalism and formerly in journalism, who have joined the Me Too campaign and are trying to change the culture uh, in newsrooms that has been inhospitable for many women across the country. Fundamentally, why does this matter to the people who consume the journalism, who read the newspapers, who watch these networks? What's at stake more broadly? We would tell you at Press Forward that this is about the integrity of the American press. Um, we believe that responsible news coverage cannot be effective unless those in power in the newsroom believe that everyone in the newsroom matters. These are We are talking about men and women who want to tell the truth to the American public. They want to give voice to the voiceless. That is our mission. That is why we are here. That is what the fourth estate is for. And unless men and women can do their best work in the newsroom without abusive behavior, uh, respectful behavior, we can't do our jobs. And that's why I think it's so critical. Ted Koppel was part of a discussion you put together at the National Press Club this week. Um, He said he's sure there's a climate of fear spreading through the industry. Other men who fear they'll be accused next. Does that feel like the beginnings of success? Um, I think that this is such an important conversation. We are not the press forward. This is not intended to be hysterical or vengeful. What we are trying to do is start a conversation I don't think men should be scared. I think that this is we're trying to start a conversation about what's acceptable now. Um, What is okay? What is not okay? People shouldn't be afraid to have these kind of conversations. It's interesting because Koppel has gotten some pushback for some of his remarks, saying, for instance, that women as well as men should come to the newsroom, should come to work properly dressed. Here's a quote. I would be just as upset by a guy coming in wearing a T-shirt and torn jeans as I am by a woman who comes in wearing a skirt so short that it is provocative. It, It does make me wonder, does there need to be some room for faux pas or struggling with words or ideas to get to a place where men and women can communicate openly and honestly about this. Absolutely. And um, there was a lot of debate about um, Ted's comment yesterday. And I have to tell you, I thought it was a perfect example. Some people some people were very angry. You, there was an, audio, uh, an audible gasp in, at the press club when he said that. And I think that we need to... That perspective is important because that is where he is. That is his perspective. He is from a different generation. He also acknowledged that yesterday. He said, I'm the the dinosaur in in the newsroom. Um, But I think that we shut down comments like that 
um, at our own peril. Mm. We need to we need to understand. I don't happen to believe that what he said is true or correct, um, but that is why we need to have this conversation and perhaps to try to understand what's motivating someone to say something, what their intentions are. Are they a part of the dialogue? I do hear something of a uh, a pattern in your answers um, saying, you know, the, the, the women at Press Forward are not militant or hysterical. And, you know, that was echoed on stage uh, yesterday. We are idealists, but we're not fools. And we have been harmed, but we are not hysterical. The likelihood of us going extreme is nil. We are management consultants. We are lawyers. We, have, we are systems thinkers. We are journalists. We are structured about this. And we are absolutely intent on building it for a lasting impact. This idea um, of going extreme or hysteria, have you heard that as a concern from people? Uh, Not really. I mean, I think nobody has expressed that as a concern. Uh, Ted yesterday on stage, Ted Koppel said that he was pleased to hear that there was moderation in our tone. And I think, like I said, nobody's suggested that as a problem. But I think that we live today in an environment where people do go to extremes. They resort to their ideological corners. Things get angry uh, and things get uh, so polarized. I mean, that's just happening naturally, and we're very intent on not making that happen. We are intent on finding solutions. Um, Including and, through a practical guide, I understand. Yes, that's another thing that we're going to do. We're um, going to um, uh, solicit um, – we're going to engage with a consulting company uh, who's going to help us design a study, um, which I know a lot of people might say, you know, another study that, but that is going to result in a, a, a blueprint for change, a blueprint so that news organizations around the world, big, small, uh, around the country, I should say, uh, whether it's radio or uh, print or broadcast, that that provide guidelines um so that these organizations can move forward in an effective, positive, respectful uh, way in the 21st century. Have you thought about what would have helped when you faced this in the newsroom, just briefly? I was so young and um, I didn't know what to do. What would have helped? Um somebody to turn to. It took me a couple of years, actually, to tell somebody what had happened because I wasn't sure if I had invited it. I, I um, Right now, I know what I would do differently. I would document what had happened. I encourage uh, people, men and women who might face harassment, to document what happens to them. I would tell them to find a mentor. Uh, and uh, if you'll indulge me, I'll encourage people to visit our website, www.thepressforward.org, uh, where we provide a lot of resources uh, for people who are experiencing this behavior. Diana May, who lives in Denver, is a leader of this new initiative called Press Forward to change the culture around sexual harassment and assault in the news media. And it also wants to help victims in other industries, so it's sharing a portion of donations with the Time's Up Legal Defense fund. Tomorrow, we'll take on the issue at the state capitol. I'll speak with an attorney about his experience investigating sexual harassment, which has been an ongoing issue in Colorado's legislature. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Researcher Daniel Ramey has visited the country's big oil and gas fields over the last few years, including in Colorado. And he kept getting the same questions. Could he recommend any books that offered a good overview of the modern oil and gas story? How safe is fracking? He says he couldn't think of a resource, and so he set out to write one himself, answering lots of the big questions around oil and gas development these days. The new book is called The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. And it has gotten praise, I imagine this is awfully rare, from both industry and environmentalists. Author Daniel Ramey is in Denver this week and joins me in the studio. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be with you. Early in the book, you take on the difference between fracking as an actual step in oil and gas development, part of the process, and fracking as a term with much wider cultural significance. And both sides, you write, use whichever term best suits their agenda. Help us understand fracking versus fracking, you know? Yeah, it's a great question. So, Hydraulic fracturing uh, is a process of stimulating an oil and gas well. That is to say, trying to increase production from an oil and gas well. Fracking is uh, short for hydraulic fracturing. It involves pumping large volumes of water mixed with sand and chemicals deep underground to create fractures in the rock. Uh, Oil and gas flows out of those fractures into the well and then up to the surface. The word fracking has taken on uh, sort of a narrow definition and then a expansive definition. And in that narrow definition, it's it's one part of a much longer process. Uh, it's a relatively short part of the process compared to the life of a well, for instance. That's right. So companies will prepare a well pad. They use graders and other earth-moving equipment to create a one-acre flat space. They bring a drilling rig in, and then they drill uh, deep underground. After the drilling is complete, then a fracking rig comes in and performs the activities that we just talked about, injecting water. Yeah. And then uh, the well produces. Uh, the well will produce for 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 years. Uh, and so fracking is really a discrete process uh, in the well development uh, life cycle. But as you say, it also has a much wider meaning. Speak to that for a bit. Yeah, the wider meaning is embraced both by pro-fracking and anti-fracking advocates when it suits their purposes. So uh, folks who are anti- shale development, oil and gas development, will often use the word fracking as expansively as possible. So they'll talk about fracking companies or fracking pipelines or fracking wells, when, as we've just discussed, fracking is only one part of the process. I think one of the reasons they do that is because the word fracking itself doesn't sound like a very appetizing word. No, all the sounds in it are sort of fun, fun, you know, harsh, and uh, might paint a Uh, Not a rosy picture, if that's the kind of picture you hope to paint. I think that's right. And I think that's been a, a pretty effective messaging strategy for those who are opposed to this type of development. When you look at the pro-fracking side of the debate, um, the story is a little bit more complicated. Oftentimes when industry and their supporters talk about the risks of oil and gas development, they use the very narrow definition of fracking. So if there's a spill at the surface mm. or if there's contamination from uh, you know, problems with the well itself, companies or their advocates will say that's not fracking, that's improper well cementing or that's a spill at the surface. 
where it gets more interesting is when industry supporters talk about the benefits of the industry, like the economic benefits or the energy security benefits. Then suddenly the definition of the term fracking starts to balloon and you will hear supporters talk about fracking has created this many jobs or fracking has reduced U.S. oil imports by this much. And so that that word can be hard to understand. Even for me, when people say fracking, I often have to clarify with them, what fracking are you talking about? Mm. And this does play into the question of how safe oil and gas development is, what its effect is on the environment. Are you talking just about the fracking process or are you talking about the kind of surface spills that can happen independent of fracking? Are you talking about the pollution of trucks that are involved in this industrial activity? You know, that too can be polluting. It actually has nothing to do or very little to do with that more narrow definition of fracking. Uh, You have found in Chris crossing oil and gas country, that the closer you get to development, the more nuanced people's views are. That's right. So um, briefly to answer your first question, the, the book is organized into a series of chapters. And those chapters are all questions. And the questions are the, the ones that people ask me most often at dinner parties or elsewhere about fracking. Yeah. So there's a chapter that uh, addresses the health risks. There's a chapter that addresses the water risks. And it does so not just for that discrete process of hydraulic fracturing, but for the entire uh, cycle of oil and gas activity. And we'll certainly get into some of those questions. Great. Um, You know, I think it could be said that there are plenty of people who live close to oil and gas development, though, who have quite uh, stark views about what's going on in their backyard. Is is Colorado an exception to this idea that uh, there seems to be more nuance the closer you get to a well? I think it actually is. So the Front Range of Colorado is one of the most interesting places for me in terms of public opinion with regard to oil and gas development. Hmm. Um, as your listeners know, I'm sure there's been a lot of controversy over development in and around the Front Range, uh, particularly in and around the expanding suburbs north of Denver and, and elsewhere. And um, But that's kind of an exception, interestingly. When you look at research that um, – that surveys people about their views on the oil and gas industry, what you tend to find is that people living closer to the industry tend to support it more than those who live further away. And that's probably because of the economic benefits that people derive. So if you live in West Texas or if you live in Western North Dakota, places where the oil industry is really the bedrock of the local economy, people tend to be pretty supportive of it. But at the same time, they recognize the real risks and challenges that are that are associated with the industry, whether it's health risks or uh, road damage from trucks or vehicle accidents. But how does the picture differ in Colorado, do you think, with that more maybe suburban kind of development? Well, I uh, – I've spent quite a bit of time here in Colorado and I've spoken to a number of colleagues that live in the area. And my sense of things is that many people move to this area uh, because of the natural amenities that it offers, the beautiful mountains, the uh, opportunities for hiking, swimming, fishing, skiing, all that stuff. And if you move to this area with those uh, types of sites and activities in mind, and then you find an oil well in your backyard, uh, or you see a drilling rig in your community, that might not coincide with what you would hope to get out of uh, living in this part of Colorado. Uh, Of course, uh, I I don't want to speak for everyone and I don't know exactly what everyone's views are on this topic, but my sense is that the presence of the oil and gas industry just isn't something that a lot of people have factored in when they they had uh, their front-range lifestyle in mind. You say a full view of shale development must recognize three facts. This revolution has created benefits. It has caused damage, 
and there are still a number of important uncertainties. I really do think that's a theme of this book, Daniel Ramey. Uh, the book is called The Fracking Debate. Are the uncertainties how much we don't know, how little research there has been into some of these really important questions? What do you think are the biggest remaining uncertainties? Well, I think there are some areas where we have a pretty good understanding uh, of what the general risks and the general benefits are. Um, there's still research ongoing to try to nail down, you know, how big are those risks and how big are those benefits. Um, but to me, the area that is uh, least well understood and the place where we could benefit most from additional research is on the potential health impacts of living near oil and gas production. So this is of course, a very hot topic here along the front range For sure. with development happening near where people live. And uh, despite what you may hear from industry advocates or industry opponents, the research on this topic is far from conclusive. So there are a relatively small number of studies that have been done looking at the effects of living near oil and gas development. Many of those studies actually have problems. Uh, and that's not the fault of the researchers, but it's really hard to do one of these experiments in a perfectly controlled kind of way. It is clear you write that there are potential risks to human health from emissions associated with oil and gas developments. Anti-fracking advocates often note the emissions I describe and assume that the negative health effects associated with them will inevitably occur. But we need to ask, you go on, how are humans exposed to these emissions? What's the frequency? And frustratingly, you say high-quality research is limited. I guess I'm curious, how has an industry been allowed to proliferate in the way that, that it has here, oil and gas, with so many unanswered questions? It's, a, it's as if the assumption is safe until proven otherwise. I think there are plenty of people who'd say, you know, it's unsafe until proven safe. Uh, talk to me about how oil and gas has moved forward in that climate. Sure. It's a great question. And it's kind of a central question when it comes to the development of businesses related to any new technology or any sort of changing technology. And there are all sorts of sectors where technologies change faster than regulators can kind of keep up with them and faster than regulators can really understand all of the implications of a given activity. Okay. So it's true that we don't have all the answers on the potential health impacts of oil and gas development, and yet it has proceeded. The approach that you describe where um, policymakers or the public may prefer to prohibit an activity until we understand all of its risks. This is often called the precautionary principle. Mm. And it's something that is often applied in Europe, parts of Europe related to, say, GMOs or to fracking. It's the same thing that's been applied in New York State, where the governor has essentially banned fracking. And the precautionary principle is is a logical, consistent way of looking at the world, but uh, but we very rarely apply the precautionary principle to other areas of our lives. Huh. It's not very American necessarily. Well, I don't know. I don't know I, if I want to go there. Okay, <laughs> but um, but the. Uh, the precautionary principle – so I, I give an example in the book about cellular phones. Cellular phones uh, are extremely useful to us in all sorts of ways, smartphones. We use them all the time for all sorts of purposes. And there are – we know that there are negative impacts of using these cellular phones, right? Distracted while driving, texting while driving, people bumping into you on the street. Those are the mundane negative aspects of it. But there are – there is also uncertainty over the long-term risks to people from using these cellular phones in terms of cancer risk uh, related to certain types of uh, brain cancer or other uh, issues like that. And yet we all have these phones. They've proliferated. And you think that that's a good metaphor in a way for oil and gas. 
I don't think it's a perfect metaphor, but it's, it's, it illustrates the general approach that it's hard to apply the precautionary principle in one area and then not apply it in all the other areas. Okay, you talked about fracking bans, for instance, uh, in the Northeast. You compare movements to ban fracking to taking an axe to a problem when a scalpel would suffice. Now, this is obviously a debate in Colorado, uh, whether the idea of fracking, uh, I get writ writ large, should be banned. Um, What would the scalpel be? There are all sorts of scalpels that you can take to risks related to oil and gas development. And to Colorado's credit, um, the policymakers in Colorado have taken some of those scalpels very effectively uh, here in this state, more so than they have in many other states. For example, um, there's something called green completions, which essentially requires oil and gas companies to capture the most harmful gases that can come off of their well pads. Uh, There are rules related to testing water quality before and after oil and gas development happens to make sure that oil and gas development doesn't negatively affect water. And if it does, that the uh, companies are held responsible. There are issues related to wastewater management. So there's a lot of wastewater that comes out of oil and gas wells, both the water that's used for fracking and also water that's naturally found deep underground. Dealing with that water is actually a big challenge. In some parts of the country, namely Oklahoma, the injection of that wastewater has led to a large number of earthquakes. And there are smart regulatory steps that policymakers can take to reduce those risks, probably not eliminate them entirely, but to reduce those risks and to prevent some of these bigger problems from occurring. So that's an example of how to take an axe to the issue, a scalpel to the issue and not an axe. But I think that that for folks concerned, for instance, about climate change, the axe might feel like the right approach. Uh, You go into... Uh, the question of climate change in this book, Daniel Ramey, The Fracking Debate. And there are two sides of the coin. You know, to what extent is the natural gas produced from fracking uh, offsetting use of coal? And then on the other side, to what extent might it be slowing the growth of renewables, say wind? Where do you come out on whether oil and gas development, using fracking as, as a process towards that, Uh, what it's doing for climate change? It's a great question, and it's a complicated one. So I'll try to uh, sum it up briefly if I can. The you, you touch on two of the most important points. So increased natural gas production has uh, reduced coal-fired electricity. That's a win for the climate. Increased natural gas production also competes with investment in wind and solar, as well as existing nuclear plants. That's a loss for the climate. There's also this effect that I talk about in the book as the happy hour effect, which is to say that as shale development has increased in the U.S., oil and gas prices have also decreased. When prices for something are lower, Mm. such as happy hour, uh, people (laughs) tend to use more of that thing, right? I might get two drinks at happy hour instead of just one uh, during normal hour or unhappy hour. And so you have to put all of those effects together and think about them over the long term, over the next 30, 40, 50 years. And there are some studies that do that. What they generally find is that a world where the shale revolution occurs – In a world where the shale revolution does not occur, so a world where, say, we ban fracking, um, the climate impacts uh, of those two worlds are relatively similar if you look 30 or 40 years out into the future. And so it seems uh, from the research that shale development is not a hero and it's not a villain in Mm. the fight against climate change. What is certain is that 
the only way to deal with climate change in the longer term is to enact meaningful policies, particularly at the federal level, that price carbon pollution and other greenhouse gas emissions and encourage them to go down over time. And that will affect not just coal, but also oil and gas in the next couple of decades. Okay. In just about the last minute, since President Trump took office, he's been looking at the potential of domestic oil and gas production. And he's been arguing not only for working for American energy independence, but energy dominance. Uh, But you argue that energy independence may actually undermine our economic and national security aims. Just briefly, how? The idea of energy independence has been around for a long time, and it's actually a little bit of a red herring. Integration into energy markets, uh, like integration in any other kind of market, actually increases um, resilience and it allows for um, U.S. consumers and producers to tie into the global market in ways that are actually helpful and not harmful. So if you imagine the U.S. um, completely isolated itself uh, in any market, whether that's oil or uh, whether it's grains or whether it's anything else, if the U.S. has a bad year in oil production – and it's totally walled off from international markets, then consumers are going to see enormous price spikes at the pump. Uh, If the U.S. has a bad year in corn production or other type of grain production and it's walled itself off from global markets, then you're going to look at big spikes in the price of food. And so the idea of isolating yourself in any market from global trading and global commodities I think is not a helpful idea in the long run. Thanks for being with us. Uh, So much more we could go into with this topic. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be with you. It's author Daniel Ramey, senior research associate with the nonprofit Resources for the Future. His new book is The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. Parents call it a big win for kids with dyslexia. The Boulder Valley School District just adopted a new elementary reading program, which will go into effect this fall. It's designed to better suit those with dyslexia, but kids who don't have the learning disorder will use it too. Michael Busey is vice president of BV Kid stands for Boulder Valley Kids Identified with Dyslexia. And he says this change was long overdue. He hopes to see it replicated all over. Michael, welcome to the program. Good morning. Welcome. You have three children. Two of them have dyslexia. Is that right? Yes, correct. Uh, Briefly describe what that means for them and how you found out. So we uh, we found out uh, that my son, who is now nine years old, uh, he was diagnosed with dyslexia when he was uh, at the end of his first grade year. And it was really my wife's intuition that she knew something was was going uh, wrong with his reading and, and, and his academic achievement. Um, because he is a very bright child. And so we had him tested with an educational psychologist, and, and we got the, the uh, diagnosis of dyslexia. It's actually pretty young for kids to be diagnosed in, in kindergarten or first grade. It's, it's absolutely possible, but a lot of times it doesn't happen until later. All right. And what, what were the signs that might have tipped her off? Um, he, he was starting to become very upset and angry with school. Um, he could verbalize that he was not able to do things uh, in terms of reading that the other kids in the class were able to do. He could see the differences um, in himself uh, between his academic abilities. And, and like I said, he's, he's a pretty bright kid, so he could recognize that 
there were things that he couldn't do that he thought he should be able to be able And that to that led to some frustration. Yes. You said that uh, for him, you got a diagnosis that it sounds like happened outside the school. It was yes. something that you sought out. Is that common? Uh, that's very common for parents to find out through outside sources to get the diagnosis. Um, most schools don't look for diag- uh they, they certainly don't diagnose, diagnose dyslexia, but most schools don't necessarily look for it either. So um, parents generally have to find an outside source to, you know, to really let them know what's happening with their kiddos. Was it a similar situation with your other kiddo who has dyslexia? Yeah. Well, uh, now that we've become a lot more aware and have a lot more knowledge on the subject, uh, we were looking much earlier with my kindergartner. So um, we did have an outside diagnosis done as well. Um, but the signs were much more clear to us mm. having know what we know now. Okay, so Boulder Valley has agreed to try a new literacy curriculum yes. that will help students with dyslexia. Take me into the classroom. What will be the difference for, say, your son? So uh, what the new structured literacy approach will entail, um, it's looking at the core foundational skills that, that kids need to learn in those okay. early years. And that's phonics and phonological awareness, things like that. So knowing my letters, knowing the sounds those letters make. And um, how to put them together and the patterns by which they're put together. Um, about 87% of the English language is, is very regular. And um, you can learn the patterns of how the words look and sound and, and, and are spelled. And the other, uh, other part are, are what we call sight words that kind of need to be memorized. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does this change a, a grasping of those concepts in the classroom? So when, when we look at this new model of teaching phonics to, to kids in the classroom, um, it will be direct and explicit teaching of these foundational skills. Um, the teachers in Boulder Valley recognize at the beginning of our adoption process that they didn't have a very good foundational skills program um, to complement the books and, and and things like that. So within those early years, the rules of the English language really need to be taught explicitly. And um, this doesn't happen in a lot of places today. And, and now in Boulder, it's, it's, it's going to happen. And what are the materials that teachers will use? Give me an example of how this will engage kids with dyslexia. So the, the, the dyslexic kids are certainly going to benefit from the, the new materials that they're teaching. Um, but it's really actually, although it's uh, published by a company that is uh, known for their dyslexia materials, it's a program called Wilson Foundations that is designed for general education classrooms. Mm-hmm. All kids will be using this. Yes. It's not just to the benefit of those with dyslexia. Yes. Um, and... Uh, that that program has been around for about uh, 20 years, and it's specifically di- designed for general education. Um, n- dyslexic kids benefit from it because the way that it teaches our language is a way that dyslexic kids need to be taught in order to learn it. But uh, an And I'm trying to get a picture for what that looks like. I'd like, okay, like to know uh, okay, what, it, so what, what I, does a teacher I, do differently. So um, I'll, I'll give you an idea of, of – um, let's take the, the words uh, run and walk. Okay. Okay. Now – you want to turn run into running and walk into walking. How do you spell run? Running. R-U-N-N-I-N-G. How do you spell walking? W-A-L-K-I-N-G. Right. In one, I'm adding an N. In the other, I'm not adding an extra K. Exactly. Uh-huh. Well, 
there are actually rules that explain how you go about that. Um, if the base word is one syllable, there's one vowel in that syllable, and the base word ends in a consonant, you double the final consonant. Um, for a lot of us that are not dyslexic, that's very automatic hmm. to, to pick that up. Um, but with Wilson Foundations, those rules will all be taught very explicitly. Um, and when a child will look at the word, they know that you double the N on running and not on walking because the there's two consonants at the end of, of walk. Therefore, and you wouldn't do it. Understanding the mechanics behind it. Yes. Uh, let's zoom out for a moment. Uh, how important is this development in Boulder Valley and, and how much would you like to see it perhaps replicated elsewhere? Uh, we'd love to see the concept of structured literacy be expanded to, you know, every school district in, in Colorado. Um, the lit, our literacy rates have been pretty stagnant as a nation for a long time. And the direct explicit instruction of foundational skills, we believe will be able to change that kind of situation. So, And this was largely a parent-motivated uh, action in Boulder Valley. Yes. Yeah. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate your time. Thank you. It's Michael Busey, vice president of the parent group BV Kid. It stands for Boulder Valley Kids Identified with Dyslexia. The school district there just adopted a new elementary literacy program. A note to say that students across Colorado are participating in nationwide walkouts today, asking for more to be done to prevent gun violence. At Columbine High School, student organizers say not enough has changed since their school was attacked nearly 20 years ago. CPR reporters are at several schools talking to students, and you'll hear those voices throughout the day on CPR News, on Twitter, and at CPRnews.org. St. Patrick's Day is this weekend, and maybe you celebrate with corned beef and cabbage. We recently learned something surprising about that dish from food blogger Hugh O'Neill. He grew up in Ireland, has lived in Denver for a long time, though. He used to own St. Killian's Cheese Shop. And Hugh, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Okay. It's great to be here. What's this big news that you're going to break for us about corned beef and cabbage? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it's, St. Patrick's Day is a great day for all Americans, and uh, it's a day when Irish Americans really like to celebrate their heritage of being Irish. And for me, as an Irish person living here, I've always found that, first of all, confusing and second, amusing um, for the same reason in that it's really not Irish food. And I thought, Wait, well, maybe – Corned beef and cabbage is not Irish food? It's not Irish. I went back to Ireland – and I would ask people, have you heard of it? Have you heard of it? And no one no one has ever heard of this meal in Ireland. It's an American-Irish thing. It's an American-Irish thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. What kinds of looks did you get in Ireland when you <laughs> asked this question? <laughs> they just said, oh, it's those crazy Americans, you know. Mm -hmm. So I started researching the thing and uh, realized where it came from. And it came out of Brooklyn, New York. Out of Brooklyn, New York. All right. That was obviously a place that saw its fair share of Irish immigrants. I'm guessing that has something to do with Absolutely. It. That's where the story has its, has its beginnings. And it was the Irish coming to New York and they'd be sent over to Brooklyn 
and uh, they didn't have language skills. It was in the mid-19th century. It was during the time of the Irish famine. They were poor. They were sick. And the people who really had empathy with them there were was the Jewish community in Brooklyn. Ah, that seems to explain f- for sure corned beef, I'm guessing. Well, exactly right. When As soon as they uh, started to get themselves together and started to get a bit of money in their pocket, they'd go to the Jewish deli in order to support these people who helped them out. And, of course, they were surprised that there was no bacon in these shops because uh, the Jews don't eat uh, pork products. But the Irish... Uh, saw that the cheapest cut of beef, of beef in the shop was the brisket. So they bought the brisket, and uh, which was, you know, preserved, corned. Huh. Okay, what about the cabbage part of this? And, well, that's easy to get because co- uh, cabbage and potatoes was all over Brooklyn because you had all these other Eastern European immigrants there. The Russians, the Estonians, the Croatians, everybody was there, and they all ate cabbage and potatoes. Cabbage and potatoes actually just seems to be a global immigrant dish. Hmm. And I kind of see, you know, when I was a kid, St. Patrick's Day was a religious holiday. And now, uh, actually in Ireland, they changed the rule and it's no longer a religious holiday. It's just a holiday for everybody. But that was inspired by the American experience of the holiday, which they just said, hey, let's have a party on St. Patrick's Day and everybody can eat this. Well, it's a really beautiful story, the story of corned beef and cabbage, because it, it is partly an Irish story. It is partly a Jewish story. It's partly an immigrant story. Exactly. I kind of see the day as an immigrant's day that everybody can celebrate their heritage because most people here are immigrants. Is this something you'd like to bring back to Ireland, though, <laughs> to some extent? Like, do you think it could get it could cross no, the no, pond? No, no, no. We eat bacon and cabbage <laughs> over there, which is... It's a super tasty meal. Bacon and cabbage. Yeah, and the bacon's a different cut. It's a big hunk of meat cut off the back. It's, the closest thing would be maybe to a, a loin of bacon, but you cut off these big, thick slabs and serve it with cabbage and a parsley sauce. Now, this does not mean you don't make corned beef and cabbage, exactly. I understand. The corned beef that I saw, and people would come and give it to me over the years, and I just found it, like, so salty and just, I couldn't eat the stuff. Huh. So I was interested in figuring out how to corn it myself. So uh, I got a book on the charcuterie a couple of years ago and made it for the first time last year. So I brined my own beef. It's very simple to make. It just takes about a week in a brine with the corning spices. And how do you do that and where do you do that? I do it in my home in a bucket. (laughs) In a bucket? Like a pink bucket maybe? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you fill that up with water. Yeah, and it's a salt solution and it has... Um, various herbs like juniper berries and bay leaves and coriander and black peppercorns. And some people like to use nitrates, which gives you that red-pink color. Mm. You can also get it by using beet juice, which is what I did. Um, that gives it the nice color. It's interesting. I think of that as a very so, Jewish food, too. Yeah, right. Borscht, you know. Exactly. It is. So you leave that so, for about a week. Yeah, and then it's ready to go. Then you boil it or po- poach it, simmer it in a pot with carrots and potatoes for about three or four hours till it's falling off the bone and then serve it with cabbage. But I decided to make sauerkraut because I was thinking, well, maybe these Irish guys were actually buying sauerkraut because that was what was available in the Jewish delis at the time. Good for digestion. So I thought I'd make sauerkraut also. So I have those two recipes. There. I put them up on the blog. You so know. when you uh, corn your own beef... Yeah, can I use that? I can use that verb. If you, do you can use the verb, but it actually comes from a corn kernel, uh, because the it refers to the size of the salt crystals which were used originally to corn the beef or preserve the beef. It's an English tradition to corn beef. 
And when you did that yourself, you said you had all those various ingredients. Yeah. Those come as a sort of prepackaged thing, or you assembled those ingredients yourself? I assembled them myself. You can buy uh-huh. a pickling spice, yeah. a general pickling spice ready-made, or you can very, very simply prepare it yourself. What about a drink pairing? What do you drink for St. Patty's Day? I'm a wine drinker. A okay. lot of people like like to pair it with um, Guinness, of course, because mm-hmm. the Americans you know, like to drink Guinness. And they like to dye it green, too, which they would never do back home in Ireland. <laughs> drink green Guinness. But no, I, I'm a wine drinker. But it would be it would be lovely with beer, with cider. If I was to drink a beer, I would drink more of like a, a low-hopped English-style ale. You know, it occurs to me there's, I think, Vino Verde, the Portuguese mm-hmm. wine. Doesn't that mean green wine? It does. You could, drink, <laughs> <that's true. laughs> you could drink that for St. Patrick's true. Day yeah. and get your green on. This yeah. has been so fun, Hugh. Who well, knew? Yeah. Uh, that's Hugh O'Neill who moved to Colorado from Ireland, runs a food blog called Carving Time. You can guess how time is spelled, T-H-Y-M-E. He used to own St. Killian's Cheese Shop in Denver, and O'Neill gave us a brief history of corned beef and cabbage His recipe will be up a little later on our website, CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. CPR News.